is your weekly show on WBAI 99.5 FM New York, where we focus on the issues that are dominating discussion in politics and government in New York City, state, and across our country. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, joined each week by my stellar colleagues, Les Katz-Marston, to bring you conversations with not just the politicians, but the experts and the advocates. And then we open up the phone lines to hear from you, which we're going to do today. Today, we have got a great and timely topic for you. But before we get to that, please join me in welcoming my Driving Forces co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston. Celeste, how are you? I'm good, Jeff. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. As you know, I'm on a little vacation needed to get away. You know, it's 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 been rather pleasant. Sometimes we just need to do that. Absolutely. And especially with everything that's going on in the news, sometimes it is good to just sort of take a step back and take a moment to take a breath and contemplate and appreciate what we do have. Certainly, I think everybody's been watching the news out of Nashville. A horrible, horrible story. Uh, and, you know, just a, another installment, unfortunately, in what seems to be this perpetual cycle of gun violence that we've been seeing specifically surrounding public places and schools. And, uh, you know, I was reading a piece or actually a few pieces that sort of suggested, Jeff, that, you know, th there's almost this feeling of, of resignation or ennui among some people, you know, that this might not be something that that we can stop or that there isn't a public will to stop. I completely agree. You know, I've been reading the stories as well. And as you know, the president and congressional Democrats are, again, saying we need more gun restrictions. But we've seen this all before, Celeste. There's a lot of talk. There's a lot of initial debate. And then nothing happens each time. Yeah, or you do see states, uh, certain states, not all states, I don't think New York is, is part of that, but then you do see states that sort of, in a very reactive or reactionary way, actually pull back restrictions on gun ownership, gun permitting, background checks, uh, even around the time of some of these, uh, of some of these unfortunate incidents, Jeff. And I think also with the Nashville case, this has set off a whole separate thing, uh, particularly sort of more towards the right of the political spectrum in terms of the person who uh, who is believed to have perpetrated this uh, unfortunate act. And, and that's a whole separate story. But, uh, you know, lots lots of things going on in the news with that, Jeff. Yeah, it's been incredible. The other thing, you know, interestingly, I was uh, comparing the media coverage initially between this and also what took place right over the border in Ciudad Juarez, where 39 people were killed. 39 migrants were killed and about two dozen more were, were in, severely injured in this massive fire that had broken out at the migrant detention center. And I was looking at all the coverage and it was, I mean, I actually got very de depressed initially because I thought, why are we not seeing as, as sweeping coverage with what just took place there? And of course, it's been picking up over the last few days. Mexican authorities now investigating saying that they might have eight suspects, including and this is interesting, including private security guards and federal immigration agents that kind of rushed out of the building, leaving people in there to die. 
Right. And so there obviously needs to be some accountability there, accountability reporting and then uh, actual accountability. But, yeah, there does seem to be kind of a, a disconnect there as well. And as you say, hopefully we will see more reporting and more action on what exactly happened there, because, I mean, there is there is definitely something to be reckoned with. And then so just to sort of relax my mind from some of these very uh, upsetting and, and violent stories I've, I've been sort of kicking back and thinking about this uh, letter signed by lots and lots of people um, regarding the future of artificial intelligence and um, the idea that maybe we should sort of consider how quickly we are progressing along the path of integrating fully things like uh, Chad GPT and artificial intelligence into our lives. You now have people like uh, Steve Wozniak, Elon Musk, whatever you think of Musk, but saying, you know, this is something that could actually alter the course of humanity and human development forever. And we should really think about this, Jeff. Yeah, you raise a good point. It's the type of thing that, you know, you've seen in in movies, you, like over the years, and now it feels like it's starting to become, you know, starting to become much more real. Sorry, I'm, you know, as a big Terminator fan, that's why it kind of starts to scare me there, Celeste. Well, it's very <laughs> interesting because look, I mean, there's, we rely so much on computers and technology and that I don't think personally is a bad thing. I mean, yeah, of course we need to not be controlled by it or entirely reliant upon it, but there are uh, lots of things. I, I mean, you know, overall, do we benefit from having this world of information? information searchable and accessible at our fingertips. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you just think back and, you know, you and I being old, um, not having, say, gone through uh, primary school or maybe even uh, college education, having um, the, the degree of information accessibility that we have now. But at the same time, are we looking at a future where um, – AI is influencing people perhaps to believe disinformation, to take uh, dangerous actions or, or uh, violent actions even. So just something something to just sort of chill out, you know, and, and think about on your vacation, Jeff. Yeah, of course. And of course, just so you know, Celeste, I drove here. I did not fly here. And I know uh, flying is something that's been on your mind today. Yeah, absolutely. I was uh, taking a look at some of this discussion. Congress again talking about creating this new no-fly list. Obviously, there is a fly list for a no-fly list for people suspected of having links to terrorism. But this would be a no-fly list for people who essentially act like jerks on airplanes, whether it's about masking, uh, about uh, other issues, but having sort of a list of people who might be grounded, and that would be up to the TSA. But you know, another another part of uh, the transportation's rich pageant, I guess you could say. <laughs> so uh, I mentioned, Celeste, that I drove to this location outside of New York City. And, you know, to be perfectly frank, you know, uh, I sat in traffic for about 45 minutes just to get out of New York City. Now, while I did have the radio on for a while, a good part of it I didn't because I was thinking about today's topic and what I had learned from the book that I had just completed to prepare for today's show and what I kept thinking about, Celeste, is do I really like driving? Does anybody? What do you dislike or like about it? And if you own a car, especially if you live and work in New York City or any city, why do you own one? A lot of this was forefront in my mind because I had just finished this book called Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It, published by Abrams Press. And it traces the forces and decisions that normalized cars and cemented our reliance on them. 
Now, the author is Daniel Knowles, and he writes that the aim of this book is to persuade you of something that is antithetical to the development of most of the world over the past 140 years. Consider that the number of cars being bought and being driven on the roads is going up across the world. The average American, he writes, now drives 13,500 miles a year or 36 miles every single day. So there's a a lot to digest in this book. And I think that once you read it, you're likely going to be much more observant about the world around you. So let's get to the guest today. Daniel Knows is the Midwest correspondent for The Economist. He previously worked as the paper's Mumbai and Nairobi bureau chiefs, as well as a reporter in the Washington, D.C. bureau and in London. And he's covered stories about everything from the wars in South Sudan and Afghanistan to the drug trade in Colombia, to the growing sobriety of modern teens in the rich world. But he prefers to write about cities, transportation, and social transformation. He is a Chicago resident, which from my experience there at least twice a year has considerable traffic problems. So let us bring him on. Daniel Knowles, welcome to WBAI. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on. It's uh, it's delightful. Uh, And Chicago does have incredible traffic problems. Oh, you know, we could talk for an hour about the Dan Ryan, but I'm not going to go there because my partners heard me complain about the Dan Ryan constantly. Anyway, (laughs) WBAI listeners really care about the environment. So I'm sure we're going to get to hear from them later in the show about today's topic. But let us start off by just stepping back for a second and find out from you how this quest began to explore the rise of the automobile and how it has taken over our lives. So... Um, I think this, this, I started thinking about this book years ago when I, I was living in Kenya. And uh, in Kenya, the, you know, probably in 10% of the population drives, but it still has some of the worst traffic of anywhere. Well, Nairobi, rather, has some of the worst traffic of any city you will ever kind of live, live in. And I spent my whole life in traffic. The only place I've ever lived that I, I kind of drove. And I just realized this is a mad way of organizing things. Most people can't afford cars here, but they're still sort of affected buy them because they're, you know, the place of work of normal people. They have to, to travel much further to get them. Pollution's terrible. Uh, obviously, the, the, the planet's warming and the more cars we add, there's this, you know, kind of um, grander pollution, global warming, that, that's a big problem. And, and it sort of developed from that. And once you begin thinking about cars, once you begin noticing them, they're almost, they're kind of like a, there's so many cars everywhere that, that you almost don't see them in day-to-day life. They, they become invisible because if you saw them everywhere, if you actually began to notice them, then you begin to see how, how many there are and it drives you a bit insane. And that's basically what happened to me. I began to notice quite how much kind of cars and road infrastructure determine everything that, that, that we do. And, you know, and I moved after Nairobi to Mumbai and then I moved back home to London and then I moved out here to, to Chicago. And... And you just you begin to think about it. You realize how much it affects everything. It affects where you live, you know, how you get to work, what sorts of jobs you do, uh, like shop. Your whole life is kind of built around transport and, and, and particularly most of the world around cars. So, so that's kind of where the book came from. So thank you so much for being here with us today. This is a great topic, and it's very interesting to me. You know, you say uh, early on in your writing that cars make us miserable. And I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about uh, why that is. And in particular, I think Americans have a very, very romanticized idea of 
cars and car ownership. Buying a car, learning to drive is a rite of passage. Owning a car uh, is a aspirational, a status symbol. Where does the misery come from? So I think uh, I, I think I think the misery comes from. I'll put it like this: If you are the only person who has a car, if you have a car and nobody else has a car, having a car is great. It is freedom. It's fantastic. It gets you from A to B. It's, it's exciting or whatever. The misery comes from the fact that you're not the only person who has a car. Everybody else has a car. So when you get on the road, you know you're surrounded by by traffic. You are traffic. Um, so you've got this great machine that can go 100 miles an hour, but in fact you're doing 15. And you know, and it's kind of smell, and and you have to pay attention constantly, you know, because somebody might be about to rear end you, you might be about to rear end them. Um, so it's stressful driving, and the reality is, for, you know, for, for, for most not only Americans actually, but most people in the rich world, like day daily life involves this sort of you know drive that that there might be. You know, 20 minutes, might be 40 minutes, might be an hour and a half kind of each way to get to an office somewhere. And it's just very stressful thing. And there's, there's studies that show that, you know, of all forms of kind of commuting, it's car drivers who, who struggle the most, who find it most, who are least happy with their commute. You know, people who ride buses are not that happy either, but they're happier than car drivers. People who can walk to work are by far the happiest. And I think there was some study that showed that, and I may be misremembering the exact details, but that essentially having, you know, if, if you can reduce your, your, if you can get rid of a car commute, it increases your happiness by, similar to something like getting a $50,000 raise. So they do, there's good evidence to, to basically show that literally having to be stuck in cars and particularly having to be stuck in traffic jams, you know, sort of urban city driving, that is the driving that most of us, if we, if we are drivers, are doing most of the time does actually make us miserable. Um, it would be romantic if you were only driving on kind of big empty, you know, country roads and in, uh, in, out in, you know, kind of the mountain west or something, but you're not. You're, you're driving into kind of Walmart and, uh, and stuck in a traffic light and, it's, and it sucks. So, so that's why. <laughs> we're speaking to Daniel Knowles. He is the Midwest correspondent for The Economist and he is the author of the brand new book, Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It, out now from Abrams Press. And Daniel, I'm going to ask you to speak up just a little bit because uh, we always have an issue with the guests being lower than us. We come through real loud and clear. So if you could just speak up a little tiny bit for me, that would be great. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about is... You know, we look around, everybody has suffered through traffic. Certainly New Yorkers know all about traffic. And a lot of the cities certainly that we live in, uh, in the East and the Northeast simply were not built for cars, don't have the infrastructure, cannot handle people driving this many cars this much. But uh, in a very general sense, easy question, how do we get people out of their cars? How do we incentivize people to stop driving so much? Oh, I mean, I think, you know, since you guys are in New York, I think the congestion problem is probably the thing you know, that, that, you, that you will have, it seems like, eventually. Um, we'll get people out of their cars. It did in London kind of almost 20 years ago. The amount of people driving fell, I think, something like 15 to 20% and, you know, almost instantly. So it works. Uh, people don't like paying for it, but uh, but it does work, yeah, and, and the traffic moves a lot faster. So that that's the kind of policy I'd advocate. But I think it's, there's also kind of a mental thing, you know. I mean, you're right. These cities in the, you know, in, in the northeast of the U.S. or where I am in Chicago have this awful traffic. But I get really worried about the traffic in 
Because I, I don't, I don't drive anywhere. I mostly get around on bicycle. In fact, just earlier I was kind of uh, on my bike crossing over the Kennedy Freeway, and you could see, you know, all the cars jammed in, kind of going very slowly in this whole traffic jam. And, and I zoomed over it at my ten normal pace. So I think, in a funny way, these car- these cities that are most congested are actually places where people suffer the traffic the least, because in a way, they, they even though the traffic seems so bad. Most people aren't having to drive that much. In New York City, most people are driving, whereas it's places like Atlanta or Houston, which actually are built for the car. Everybody has to drive all the time, so the traffic, they, they really suffer from it because they're doing, you know, they're doing it so much, whereas and there isn't the alternative like getting on the subway. So I think essentially the solution to that pain is building cities that look more like New York and, and look more like, uh, you know, maybe not entirely like Chicago, but, but more like Chicago than Houston, where there are at least alternatives. If you really hate driving, and not everybody will, some people will just do it anyway, um, but if you really hate it, there are alternatives that you can get on a train or a bicycle and get from you know, where, you, where you need to be and not kind of suffer that, that punishing commute. So, um, yeah, so that's basically what I think. So, Daniel, one of the interesting parts of the book is you talk about something called induced demand, and that's something uh, Jane Jacobs recognized well before urban planners. Can you talk a little about induced demand and and how that relates to this explosion of uh, of use of cars in our area or in our across our world? Yeah, so this actually kind of relates to the to the last question in a way that that induced demand basically this idea you can't really solve traffic. People, you know, if you widen a road, then um, initially a little bit, people, the cars will move faster. Then, but then what happens is that people realize that they can move faster on that road and more people will start driving. You know, they might stop taking the train or they might, you know, or new businesses will open at, at one end of the road that weren't there before. You know, so everything spreads out. And after a while, um, essentially the traffic is the same as it was before. Um, induced demand is basically you build it and they will come. And with road space, what we've, we've done, particularly here in the U.S., but I mean, you know, it's happened where I came from in the U.K. too, is that, you know, in an attempt to solve traffic, we built more and more longer and wider roads, you know. But what actually happened was that, that we just all got further apart. You know, our, our homes kind of spread out further out the cities. We had more parking Spaces around, everything was further apart. So instead of people moving faster, we ended up kind of just spending more time driving. Uh, you know, the traffic was as bad as it was before, even with these much wider roads. So there have been, you had, had cited some examples in your research and in your writing about places that are trying to deal with this and uh, how, how they are faring. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that, places like Tokyo, I think, for example. So Tokyo is a great example because Tokyo is actually a city that was never really taken over by the car in the first place. The Japanese, you know, after World War II, obviously Tokyo had been almost obliterated and, and, um, and it had to be rebuilt. But Japan at that point was not a particularly rich country. And the way they, they rebuilt was they built railways. They had a lot of expertise. They built railways. And when they built roads, the roads, when they first started building expressways in Japan, they all had tolls on. And they've always had these very narrow street patterns. And as they rebuilt on them, a lot of them were too narrow to have cars go, go down them. So Tokyo developed in this way where basically driving in Japan is, is, is expensive. It's very difficult. Um, there's no on-street parking, for example, no overnight on-street parking. 
So if you own a car in Japan, you also have to own an off-street parking space. And you can't buy a car unless you, you know, unless you show the police that you have evidence that there's this off-street parking space. So even though actually quite a lot of Japanese people do own cars, and Japan is a country that, that makes cars, they don't drive them that much. They tend to use them for going out to the countryside, that sort of thing. They don't drive them to get around the city. Um, you know, they also have these expensive tolls on the roads, and they have an incredible public transport infrastructure. They have, you know, these, these fantastic subway trains and buses and systems that, that that mean that people can get around. And so, so Tokyo basically is a place where almost nobody really drives. Um, but there are places that are kind of, you know, that, that that were sort of very overtaken by traffic, were you know really difficult, but very car kind of dominated, like, like London, actually, um, or Paris, um, uh, that have, in the last kind of 20 years or so, begun to, to really turn away from that. So, so it's happening in Europe, and it's actually happening in some parts of America, too. Um, places like Portland, uh, Minneapolis, you know, that are putting in bike lanes and, you know, beginning to, to, to find ways of providing alternatives. So it's, so, it's, so it's kind of happening in lots of places, I think, that are managing to, to, to give people an alternative to, to cars and give space back to people, you know, people rather than vehicles. You know, Daniel, you note near the end of the book that you, you know, hesitate to speculate about what the future is going to look like. But, of course, I want to ask that because while we can't predict the future, what are some of the signs that you're seeing that might give you a little hope? So the stuff that gives me hope is exactly what I was just saying. You have, you know, these cities and places that you wouldn't have thought of necessarily as being kind of, you know, liberal urbanite cities that were going to become trying to get rid of the car. Places like Houston, even uh, which I wrote about the book, but Houston has been, you know, experimenting with, with getting rid of some of the, the parking rules they have around new development, so that you can build, you know, buildings that have to provide loads of car parking spaces. They want to do more public transport. You see it. Yeah, Minneapolis is a great example. The bike lanes there are phenomenal. You can really get around the city by bike. Um, you see it there's been, you know, across the US, all of these attempts um, to change rules around development to make it easier to build, you know, apartments and dense housing near public transport so that you, know, you can get off the train and walk straight home rather than, you know, the problem with a lot of public transport in this country is that you get off the station and then it's a 20-minute walk to wherever you need to go because it's surrounded by car parks, um, parking lots. So, so I think stuff, that's what makes me optimistic. I, I think there's a huge movement of kind of particularly young people. You know, young people are far less likely to drive than they used to be. And there's, uh, there's, there's a growing minority of young Americans who don't have driving licenses. And, you know, and I hear from people younger than me, I'm 35, I hear kind of 22-year-olds who say like, they don't want to get a license and stuff. And I hear this from their parents as well who say, gosh, you know, my kid doesn't want to get a license. They can't be bothered and learning. They don't get it. So I think there's a generational change too. So that's what makes me optimistic. But the reason I said in the book that I can't predict it, there's a couple of things as well and uh, that, that make me a bit uncertain and... and uh, I don't know, one of them is the rise of electric cars, which I think is very good for the environment, that has a risk that electric cars will be so cheap to drive uh, that, uh, you know, that people will drive them, them everywhere. So that's what I worry about, too. 
That's a, that's an interesting point. And I did want to ask you one more thing very quickly is that uh, you talked about the um, the effect of this sort of Carmageddon. Um, it, it has a different impact on different groups of people. It might be by by age or by gender or by, uh, you know, some, some other measure. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it doesn't seem to be the, the burden doesn't seem to apply equally. Well, right. I mean, just if you look at the history and uh, of kind of a lot of expressway building in, in America, you know, it, the expressways were built in black neighborhoods in general through them. Literally tens of thousands of people, you know, in each case, got forced to move. And, and I mean, take uh, the, the Dan Ryan, uh, which I think came up earlier here in Chicago, which it's got this funny kink in it, if you look at it on the map, and that's there because it was essentially designed you know, in the 1960s as an attempt to Put a barrier between what was then, you know, the, the black neighborhood of Bronzo and the, the much more white neighborhood of Bridgeport, and and that happened, you know, all over this country uh, in in the 1950s, 1960s. Roads were used as this kind of force of of segregation, and it's still the case now that you know, if you are an African American, you're far more likely to die in a car crash. Um, you're more dependent on your car as well because you know the neighborhoods where, where black people lives are, are very car-centric and, and they often have the most dangerous roads built through them. So, um, so they, they kind of get the most, most of those ones. They're forced to use their cars and they're also most likely to die car crashes. And that's the legacy of how the roads were built. So, so that's kind of the biggest thing. It, it, you know, it really, and there's a whole chapter in the book about some of that, that, that history. But you know, the legacy of, of racism and urban planning and they, they go hand in hand with kind of the cars, with cars. Cars enabled a lot of white fight. They didn't cause it per se, but they made it possible. So. Daniel Knowles is the author of Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It, out now from Abrams Press. And Daniel, if people want to find out more about you, about the book, about your work at The Economist, where can they find you? Well, so my work is generally in The Economist every week in the U.S. section, but of course we're anonymous. Um, but you can find me on Twitter at D.L. Knowles. Um, Knowles is K-N-O-W-L-E-S, D.L. Knowles. And, uh, uh, and the book is available in lots of good retailers now. Um, so Twitter and, and uh, is probably generally the best place to find me. That's where I post all of my thoughts. And, then, and I post that and do links to the articles I write in The Economist there too. So... Daniel Knowles, thank you so much for being here with Jeff and with me on WBAI today. Thank you ever so much for having me on. It's been a delight. You're listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. I am Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons, and we were just talking to Daniel Knowles. Check out his new book, Carmageddon, and you can check out his work in The Economist, although, as he rightly points out, they do not use bylines in The Economist. So uh, if you uh, if you know that he is the Midwest correspondent for the magazine, that might help you uh, suss out which pieces are his. But that was an interesting discussion, Jeff. I'm glad that you picked up on that book because, I mean, if you think about dealing with cars and driving and traffic in the city, I mean, the thing I always hated about it was parking. I felt like lots of times, I mean, except for work, but if I had the choice to use my car or not, often I didn't, not because it wasn't going to be more convenient or I wasn't going to get there faster, but there was nowhere to put it. And then where was I going to put it when I got back? Where was I going to park? 
<laughs> you raise some good points. And in fact, you know, there was a chapter in the book. He does talk about like all of the, uh, I guess the requirements when you're building a new structure, how many parking spots you have to have per, I'll just, you know, make up this thing per apartment or per unit in a building. And, and it just feels like often, and you see this, Celeste, in a lot of neighborhoods too, where there's like lots of parking garages and parking lots cropping up. I mean, it's just so much space that we're using for cars. And the more space we create, the more cars people buy. So it, it's just this, this vicious cycle. I mean, this, the other thing before we move on, the other thing that really stuck out, and mm. I, I can't watch commercials the same way on TV because he points out about the shift towards, uh, you know, making it seem so much more enticing for all of us to want to get bigger cars. You know, how, remember how we moved like suddenly in the last 10 or what, 15 years to suddenly all the, the mini, what SUVs. And so, and I'm watching all the commercials now and I'm seeing, and he points this out in the book about, you know, how they romanticize, like you're driving on an empty road, an empty highway in the Midwest in a nice big car. How often are we going to need a Jeep in New York City? But we're getting all these commercials here in New York City. Right. Exactly. And, and I think that, look, there is a difference between, um, I don't, I don't hate cars, but what they do to life in New York City is definitely worth talking about. Or even like other major cities. And, and as I was saying before, I think it's legitimate cities that were sort of, um, coming up and being planned and designed after the advent of, uh, you know, mass consumption of automobiles is one thing. But if you have ever tried driving in a place like Boston, okay. A joint that was not designed for cars and I have driven there, you know, 20 years ago even or longer actually really dating myself here. But uh, it's just it's just not made that way. It is not made that way, Jeff. Yeah, and a lot of cities are that way. It's, it's, it, and Houston, he talks about this. And if you pick up the book, you're just going to be astounded when you see what's taking place in Houston with just the amazing traffic. I mean, I can complain for sitting 45 minutes on the cross Bronx and, and that'll frustrate me, but I cannot imagine what it would be like to sit there for several hours trying to get out of a traffic jam. I only had that, I guess, once in my life where it was maybe three, four hours because of a cable that had, uh, split on a bridge on my way to Washington, D.C. And we were caught in an area where you just could not get off the road anymore. And that just drove me crazy. So that, that's my experience. Well, listen, so this is I think this is an important discussion to have about the future of cars in New York, the future of how we get around and how we live, how that affects our lifestyle, our air quality, our public safety, for that matter. So if you care about issues like this and if you care about having serious discussions with experts like Daniel Knowles and many of the people that we have on this program, please take a moment today. Go to WBAI.org and lend your support to this radio station. This is non-commercial, listener-supported WBAI. We need your help. Uh, to be clear, this station does not exist without you. That is the fact. WBAI will go silent, will go off the air forever without the support of everybody who listens, everyone who listens regularly, everyone who listens occasionally. Most of us here at the station are volunteers. Jeff and I are volunteers. We work hard every week to bring you the best program we can with good guests to get in as many of your calls to give voice to real New Yorkers about issues that really matter. So we do this because we care about the city. We care about uh, our fellow New Yorkers, but we cannot do this 
this without your help, please. It only takes a minute to support free speech, independent radio, alternative radio that you cannot get anywhere else. Big business does not power WBAI. You power WBAI. We are counting on you. Please go to WBAI.org today and stand up for free speech, independent media. That's WBAI.org. And if you just tuned in, you are listening to Driving Forces with me, Jeff Simmons, and my wonderful co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM. We're also streaming live at WBAI.org. We're going to open up the phone lines in about another seven or so minutes. Write down this number, but don't call yet. 212-209-2877. That number to call to weigh in on the topic today is 212-209-2877. And just to build on what Celeste talked about a few moments ago, this is Women's History Month. This is we're at the end of Women's History Month. But this month, WBAI had launched a special campaign to help us pay our bills to be able to stay on the air. And that's where we're asking you if you could become a BAI buddy in the name of this show or any show that matters to you. And a BAI buddy gives a 15 or 20 or 25 any amount a dollar contribution every month that goes right on your credit card. And if you do it now and become a BAI buddy for Women's History Month, you can get the Women's History Audio Collection. And that has 79 hours of recordings that showcase women's history through recorded, restored audio recordings that date back to the earliest days of community radio broadcasting in 1949. Now, one segment that I listened to recently was Grace Paley, who you may know as a short story author, poet, teacher, and political activist. She served as a delegate to the 1973 World Peace Conference in Moscow, and had supported efforts to improve human rights and resist military intervention in Central America. So for now, we're going to just leave you briefly with a taste of what you'll hear from Grace Paley on the Women's History Audio Collection. Catherine, if you'll play that clip. to listener sponsor WBAI New York with a moment in women's history. Grace Paley is familiar to longtime WBAI listeners. I think someone had said something about how the old anti-war movement thought if we were all nice, everything would change. But the truth is, many people spent many years in jail. Tens of thousands of people lived in exile for many years. There are probably hundreds underground to this day. Paley helped found the Vietnam Peace Center in 1961. She visited Hanoi as a member of a peace delegation. Groups of people from the, from the uh, anti-war peace movement went to Vietnam during the war with an arrangement uh, with the Vietnamese government to bring back American prisoners of war. This was uh, the idea of the, of the uh, Vietnamese to really show that they would like to end the war and they were sending these guys back, three, four at a time. And they were all pilots, they were all officers. It was an officer class. And they asked only one thing, and that was that these pilots uh, not be used again during the war and that they not have any association with the Air Force. Uh, within six months of their return, the United States government had them teaching other pilots and uh, con- continuing their old work. It was clear from that that the United States had no intentions of ending that war. 
The reason I'm telling you this is because I think the whole Iranian business is exactly the same thing. The celebrated writer and peace activist was forever making connections between the past and the present. Grace Paley once said there's no point in getting older if you can't say something about what happened earlier. We're living right now at a time where the United States government could have gotten out of the whole thing very easily. In the 70s, Paley turned her attention to the anti-nuclear movement. She once said for a writer not to be political is peculiar. She was interested in a history of everyday life. She was one of the earliest writers to explore the lives of women, mostly Jewish, mostly New Yorkers, with a focus on single mothers. You can receive our Women's History audio collection with Grace Paley and other trailblazers by becoming a WBAI buddy, a sustaining member for $15 a month. You'll also receive our fabulous tote bag for all your belongings when you're out and about. Please go to women.wbai.org, women.wbai.org to become a WBAI buddy in the name of your favorite program or in the name of all WBAI programs or in the name of WBAI's long history of activism and programming you enjoy. Please call 212 212- 209-2950-212-209-2950 and say yes I want to become a WBAI buddy this Women's History Month. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons. Remember, you can go to WBAI.org anytime, day or night, and give generously to support this station. Keep us on the air with all these great programs about music, culture, arts, politics, and more. So now we're going to go to your calls, 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. Do you think Americans will ever get over their addiction to automobiles? How are we going to deal with traffic in this city? Is congestion pricing going to be a reality? Should it be a reality? Are you not willing to give up your car? Are you thinking about giving up your car? What would it take to get you out of your car or get your neighbor out of their car? 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. We're going to take a short musical break with a song I think you know, and then we will be right back. One, two, one, two, three, four.
And welcome back to WBAI's Driving Forces. That was Willie Nelson's On the Road Again, a perfect topic for today. If you would like to give us a call and weigh in on the issues we've been talking about and the book Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It, and if you have the answer, let us know. 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. We have two callers on the line. We're going to get to them. One thing, just want to give you a little bit of breaking news. Uh, this is from the New York Times. Apparently, a Manhattan grand jury voted to indict Donald Trump today for his role in paying hush money to a porn star, according to people with knowledge of the matter. So I'm sure we're going to be hearing a lot more about this in the coming days. Let us get to the calls. Let's get that first caller on the line. Welcome to WBAI's Driving Forces. You're on the air. What's your name and what's on your mind today? Yes, my name's David. I'm all for lowering, you know, eliminating uh, gasoline cars, eliminating natural gas in homes. But the way it's done now, you know, structurally, it's making the the rich or people who are wealthy who can afford these EVs, who can afford, you know, putting in a charger in their home or a property um, or even afford, you know, the uh, charging, uh, you know, on paying for it. Uh, I feel that it's penalizing people who are, you know, of lower income. Uh, you really can't buy an entry car anymore, a subcompact, because hardly anyone's making them for fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars like six, seven years ago. So, you know, the major contributors to emissions uh, are airplanes, trucks, school buses, construction um, vehicles, you know, the big van, delivery vans. So I am confused as why they can come first. The diesel trucks, this is like a majority of the horrible emissions that people breathe in that damages their lungs and particles can enter their brain and cause probably neurodegenerative diseases. So the way it's working out, it's going to be a bifurcated economy. There's not going to be any gas. There are hardly any gas stations in Manhattan. And basically, it's going to be, yeah, you're going to have a car, whether it be a Tesla or, you know, something, you know, a high-end car, EV. And it's going to be for the wealthy. HOV lanes are for those who have the EVs who can afford it. So, you know... (laughs) The uh, pricing on the 59th Street Bridge will affect uh, negatively the working class and the people who are, you know, least able to uh, afford, uh, you know, this brunt. Uh, bike lanes are designed. Reality is it's an excuse to get rid of cars, to make only a car. Very expensive, miserable experience. And the problem is that, you know, again, it's the heavy-duty trucks, delivery mm-hmm. trucks, that are really spewing all most of the emissions. And why does the guy in the Bronx or Queens who's driving a four-cylinder, which needs to be phased out, they're not going to, listen, they're not going to, they don't make these cars, and it's going to harm mm-hmm. them. They're not going to be gasoline stations, and, and, and basically you're going to charge uh, in your home and those who can't afford too bad. 
Well, that's a that's an interesting point, and and we and no, certainly appreciate your call. That you know, you raise a bunch of interesting points. Thank you again for your call two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. Talking about uh, Carmageddon, the book that we were discussing earlier with the author Daniel Knowles, and that is a very interesting point. Is this going to become more of? than it already is, uh, a class issue, an income issue, a geographic issue, 212-209-2877. believe we have at least one more caller holding, going back to the phones, WBAI. You're on the air. What's your name and where are you calling from? Yes, hello. My name is Glenn. What's going on today? Uh, not much. Just listen to your radio station. Um, I think I'd comment on the Carmageddon thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as, yeah, I mean, you want to limit cause, it doesn't seem to be the problem. Cause not the problem. It's, it's, it's a matter of what fuel you're using. Um, and even just using electric really doesn't solve anything either. It actually would cause more problems. It depends on how you're charging them. If you're using coal or oil to charge batteries, it's not efficient. There's other fuels you can use. One is a store of, of energy, which is your battery, and one is with the source of energy. You can use solar and wind, which is zero as far as adding carbon, um, and, and you can produce. You can make your own fuel. You can use ammonia, or you could use hydrogen. works very well. And these have no no uh, no, no emissions that, that are negative. Uh, hydrogen you have to make. You can use electricity to make it. That is, is how you're going to get the electricity to make the hydrogen, and hydrogen you can use in an internal combustion engine. You can also use a fuel cell also. The one is a store of engine. You can also use compressed air. There's a lot of different things that you can use especially in in a city. And uh, if you want to get people to stop driving, take care of your public transportation. Make that make that more efficient. Right. No, that's a, that's an excellent point. And certainly we've talked yeah, about yeah. on this program. And thank you again for your call. And we certainly have talked on this program about some of the issues right now with the MTA and uh, funding for the MTA. We certainly have also looked at ridership post pandemic. Is it going to get back up to uh, the levels that we, we were at before COVID-19 uh, took a bite out of this city? 212-209-2877 is the number to call. 212-209-2877. Did you used to have a car in New York at any point, and why did you get rid of it? What sort of pushed you over the edge, or did you try using public transportation and decide, you know what, this th- this ain't it, Chief? I need to have my own car to be able to go where I want to go when I want to go and get home when I want to get home. Two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. It's interesting, Celeste, because. Uh, for many of the years that I've lived in New York City, I did not have a car. I mean, I had one that access to one at work when I needed it when I was at New York One News. But even when I was with the Post and the News, it was easier for me to just get around the city by taking mass transit. And only in my current job, I, you know, that's when I bought a car because I knew I had to leave the city more often now and that I wouldn't always be in places that would have easy access from where I was going to be to public, uh, public transportation. But it, it, you know, it is a good point. I, I don't use the car to run errands in my neighborhood. I'd rather walk and Queens is a very walkable area, but there are, you know, there are sections of Queens where the, they are in transit deserts. I mean, it takes a while to get to places. One fact, as we're waiting for more calls, one thing that you're going to love this, Celeste, because of course, talking about the Dan Ryan in Chicago before uh, Daniel knows mentions in the book. Let me find this fact. Here we go. Drivers in the city of Chicago spend roughly four full days a year 
stuck in traffic jams, if you could believe it, when you add that all up. And think about, you know, how how troublesome that would be if that were you, that, you, you know, you're spending four full days a year stuck in traffic jams. Give us a call. Let us know how you feel about these issues. 212-209-2877. Celeste and I want to hear from you at 212-209-2877. Please give us a call and let us know how you feel about this issue, you know, and also about congestion pricing, because recently we've seen even more resistance from a bipartisan group of congressional members. Uh, I know Nicole Maliotakis, Republican from Brooklyn, Staten Island. We've heard from her uh, this past week. We did invite her on the show, but they kind of ghosted me after the initial inquiry there. But we wanted to know what her concern is about this. We reached out to Democrat Josh Gothheimer, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, over in New Jersey, who also is opposed to this because he's also been talking about how when something like this congestion pricing is implemented, it is going to create traffic problems in areas as people try to find ways to avoid having to pay these fees. It's it's just, you know, this is an issue that's going to keep going on. And I know that it's been debated for years, Celeste. Absolutely. 212-209-2877. 212-209-2877. I think we've been talking about this for so many years, and I don't know if it's gotten much better. Now, we have seen some changes in terms of the availability, say, of city bikes, of changes to the bike lanes. Bike lanes is a whole nother thing, as we all know, where we put the bike lanes, how they are controlled. Um, but, you know, we've already also seen an increase in, uh, say, motor uh, motorized bikes and uh, motorized scooters, you know, alternative ways for people to get around besides just walking and, um, you know, encouraging people in all sorts of ways to use mass transit, to use uh, MTA uh, subway, bus, uh, to use Metro North, uh, Long Island Railroad, commuter rail, and all that kind of stuff. So 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. We have a time for a few more of your calls going to the phones now, WBAI, you're on the air what's your name and where you're calling from that's you that's you the suspense or the silence is killing me <laughs> okay we are going to try a, another caller here 212-209-2877 212-209-2877 if that was just you uh okay we're going to go back to the phones now wbai you're on the air what's your name and where you're calling from Oh, good afternoon or oh, good evening. Uh, this is Heidi calling from Queens. It's so crazy that you're having this conversation. I was literally <laughs> on the phone with my complex um, office because my car has been sitting in my parking space for the last few months. You know why? My young son had a fender bender and my insurance went to $500. And I refused to pay it, so I'm giving up my car. Wow. So that was just, a, that's that's a big jump. Got to give it up. There's no way I'm paying $500. It's not a luxury car. <laughs> I could see if it was a luxury car. It's not. Plus, you know what? Uh, with the price of gas and, um, you know, repairs and everything, I'm going to give it up for a while and, you know, just, you know, see where it goes from here. But there's no way I'm paying $500 a month. Well, that's, that is a lot of money. So how do you think, I'm just curious, how do you think your life is going to be different uh, going about uh, doing your errands or doing your shopping? or? Uh, well, it's been different for the last four months. I've yeah. been on public transportation. 
you know, I had to get used to it um, all over again. But, you know, I'm a Brooklyn girl originally. And, um, you know, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> Always have a shopping bag in my, in my bag because you never know when you're going to go to the store. And it is what it is. And you know what? I just think of it as exercise. So. Well, I want to thank you for calling in with that, uh, and best wishes, best of luck, uh, you know, thank getting around you. without a car, because as you know, in Queens, we also do have good public transportation, so thank oh, you so definitely. much. Thank you so much for giving us a call here on the show today. We're going to have to start wrapping up, I guess, Celeste. We've got only about three minutes left before we have to go. What else is on your mind? Wow. Well, of course, I am. What I'm, what I'm always thinking about day and night is how important it is for everybody to chip in and give to WBAI. Please go to WBAI.org today, or you can call. 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. Please become a BAI buddy in the name of this program, Driving Forces. Do it for me. Mostly do it for Jeff, though. Mostly do it for Jeff <laughs> and then sort of do it for WBAI to keep us on the air for another 60 years. Uh, is a thanks for your generous gift. You can get a tax write-off. or You can also choose uh, one of our wonderful, wonderful thank you gifts that we will have sent out to you. It could be... um the women's history collection that we talked about, the audio uh, audio compilation with lots and lots of wonderful original recordings from throughout the history of community radio since back in 1949. And uh, we also want to make sure to thank today's guest on our program. Remember, that was Daniel Knowles. He is the author of Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It, out now from Abrams Press. We want to thank you, our listeners, and all of our callers, and of course, our engineer today, Catherine, who heroically stepped in uh, in a bit of a pinch today. Really appreciate her help always as well. Jeff, what is coming up on the menu? I will be back this Sunday with City Watch at 8 a.m. I'll be broadcasting from outside of Philly this Sunday at my friend's house. I'll be joined by my co-host, Carlos Menchaca. And one of the things we're going to be doing is introducing you to Mino, Laura, and Amanda Eckery of the People's Theater Project, because in a few weeks, they're going to be presenting the world premiere of an original, almost all-immigrant play called The Diamond. And they have generously donated several pairs of tickets to WBII listeners who contribute during the show. So you're going to want to tune in this Sunday at 8 o'clock in the morning for City Watch with me and Carlos Menchaca. Thank you so much. For listening today's, to today's edition of Driving Forces with Celeste Katz-Marston and myself, remember, we upload every edition of our program to SoundCloud, Apple Music, and Stitcher so you can subscribe and never miss a show. And remember to check us out on Twitter and Facebook. So on behalf of Celeste and I and Catherine, I want to wish you a wonderful day, and we'll see you on the radio next week.